Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen. the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 143rd episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And today we are joined by a very special guest, Amanda Prouty. And she is going to share with us a location that she suggested to us, the Witch House Inn of all places, Salem, Massachusetts. How are you, Amanda? I'm well. How are you? We're doing fabulous. Looking very forward to hearing all about the Witch House from you because well, I don't know if we want to necessarily call you an expert, but you had been a tour guide there, right? Yes, I tour guided there off and on for about four years. Awesome. Well, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? So I actually am a teacher by trade, and I've been a teacher for over a decade. I teach history here in Massachusetts. I also have given guided tours all over Salem, including on a trolley. I gave haunted tours on a trolley a few years back, and I was literally the poster girl. So that was pretty fun. Oh, so you had your 15 minutes of fame. I did. I did. My boss said, Amanda, take a picture. Make a face. And I did, and I didn't know I was going to end up with a poster. (laughs) You know, I've been living in Salem for 12 years now. I love her. I love her history. I think it's a great place to be, even in the Halloween craziness. So, Well, I bet it gets kind of exciting to have all of the people come out there, though, for Halloween. It just adds that extra little, I don't know, fun. It's actually a lot of great people watching. Um, I mean, it's nice to see where people come from. And the city's bread and butter really is the tourism industry. Mm-hmm. And the town's population quadruples. Oh, wow. In the month of October, we're a city of 45,000-ish, just to give you an idea of how many people come into town. Wow. So do you have enough hotels and stuff there for everybody? Oh, no, of course not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We're actually looking to build a Hampton Inn here now, but uh, the hotels, you have to book at least a year in advance, if not two Mm -hmm. years in advance. But people, we also have a train here that runs from Boston up to Rockport. So people will stay in hotels along the train route and then commuter rail it into town because traffic, as you can imagine, is a nightmare. Oh, I'm sure. But I live right downtown, so my parking lot actually gets barricaded off on the weekends. Good thing they rope it off so you have somewhere to park. Wow, that is amazing, the population change. That would be really fun to visit during Halloween, but I don't know if I could take all those people. Well, we're looking forward to having you share your knowledge on the Witch House with us. But before we do that, we'd love to have you guys check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us feedback, where can they do that? 
They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. We are really excited. One of our listeners is Matt Herons, and he is a very talented artist. And he had told Denise and I that he wanted to do this picture of us that would put us inside the haunted mansion. He spent a few, what would you say, about 15 minutes on Skype with us? <laughs> Or more, since I didn't know how to how to smirk. <laughs> he was trying to get Denise to smirk, but he just spent this time with us on Skype, and then he made this gorgeous picture of us. And if you guys are on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, we've been putting it out to all of those different locations for you guys to check out, and it just turned out amazing. Yeah, we it's, love it. Yeah, it's very, very cool. And using our favorite colors, which are purple and green, which he used because that's what Disney's always used, used kind of to signify evil forces like Maleficent, the Haunted Mansion, the purples and greens. But unbeknownst to him, those were actually our wedding colors when we got married back in 1995. So it was perfect. And Matt does commissioned work. So if that's something that you're looking for, check him out. You can find him at Saint Works Art. And that Saint is in S-A-I-N-T-W-O-R-K-S-A-R-T. You can find him on Twitter. That's what he's at on Instagram. And he's also on Facebook. And keep so. in mind, if you're wanting commissioned work, he did the Haunted Mansion because we love the Haunted Mansion, but he could put you into whatever scene or movie that you would love. So if you're a Star Wars person, he could make your picture be part of them. We also want to thank a couple of our listeners for sending us some suggestions for future episodes. Karen and Marissa, thanks so much. This Friday, we are going to be doing a ghost tour in Orlando with the American Ghost Adventures, and that is August 19th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 2016. If you guys would like to join us on that, the website is AmericanGhostAdventures.com, and it's the Orlando Ghost Tour at 8 p.m. Eastern. It's $30 for a two-hour tour. So if you can join us for that and are going to be in the area, we'd love to have you guys join us. Let us know. Email us so that we know to be watching out for you. We already know Kate's going to be joining us, so we're looking forward to that. Yes, it'll be a lot of fun. We want to thank Julie David for sending the picture that she sent to us. That was amazing. We want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Kim. Hey, Kim. Nicole. Hi, Nicole. And Pamela. Hey, Pamela. All right. Let's head off to Salem, Massachusetts and find out about the Witch House. History Goes Bump is entirely listener-supported. Become an executive producer for as little as $1 a month. Get listed on the website and invited to exclusive virtual meetups. For $5 a month, you get that and exclusive bonus content like the Haunted True Crime bonus cast. For $10 and above a month, you'll get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash historygoesbump or you can support us via PayPal. Click the support the show tab at historygoesbump.com for more information. History is full of oddities, curiosities, mysteries, and the truly bizarre. Welcome to This Moment in Oddity. The Moment in Oddity was suggested by listener Karen Hubbard. Many are probably unaware that the invention of the electric chair begins in Buffalo, New York. On Monday, May 13, 1889, William Kemmler was found guilty of murder. 
The following day, he was sentenced to, quote, suffer the death punishment by being executed by electricity, as provided by the Code of Criminal Procedure of the State of New York, and that he be removed to and kept in confinement in Auburn State Prison, end quote. Kemmler had beaten his wife to death with the blunt end of an axe. The use of the electric chair was brand new. As a matter of fact, Kemmler would be the first man executed in the chair. The switch was thrown with 1,000 volts for 17 seconds, and everybody thought Kemmler was dead. But he wasn't. The machine was recharged and 2,000 volts was run through Kemmler's body for long enough that blood started to seep from his body and he finally caught on fire. This time, he was dead. The DA who had prosecuted Kemmler in Buffalo ran from the room and got sick. Not only was this way of execution started with Kemmler in Buffalo, the idea was sparked in Buffalo as well. The Brush Electric Company was located in Buffalo and provided streetlights to major cities like Cleveland, Manhattan, Boston, and San Francisco. They'd invented arc lights, which were more powerful than filament lamps. They were testing these new lights one evening and caught the attention of many people in the town. Their curiosity brought them down where they found wires running between poles, and they discovered that the dynamos were leaching out a dull current of electricity to the metal railing near them. The visitors formed a semicircle and held hands, and the people on each end grabbed the rail. A light tickle of electricity passed through the group. One of those visitors was a man named Lemuel Smith. Smith went and got drunk and returned alone later that night. He was chased off several times by the police, but he eventually managed to sneak past them. He ran towards one of the dynamos and grabbed a pole, but got no shock. He reached out for the other pole with his other hand and, well, he became the first American killed by a dynamo. This showed that a person could be killed with two different power cycles, one high voltage and one low voltage. The high voltage caused the brain to cease functioning and the low voltage stopped the heart. That technology was built into the electric chair and didn't change for the next 100 years. The idea that a drunk trespasser in Buffalo, New York, looking for a cheap thrill would inspire the invention of the electric chair certainly is odd. You're not afraid of a little ghost, are you? This Day in History This Day in History was brought to us by Richard Schaefer. On this day, August 17th in 1962, Peter Fetcher was shot and killed by East German border guards. The Cold War was in full swing. After World War II, Germany was split between the victorious powers. The United States and her allies possessed a sphere of influence over West Germany and also took on the roles as protector and supporter. East Germany was in the gravitational pull of Russia and subscribed to the ideals of communism. Things in East Germany were tough. High inflation, scarcity of consumer goods, and being in a country ruled by an iron fist made life unbearable in communist East Germany. This led to many people trying to flee the country into their neighboring country of West Germany, which had an abundance of consumer goods, jobs, a democratic government, and a way of life that meant peace and prosperity. Fetcher and his friend Helmut Kohlbeck tried to cross the Berlin Wall together. East German border guards fired upon the two as they raced to the wall. Kolbeck made it, but Fetcher was struck in the pelvis. Fetcher screamed and cried in agony as he lay dying at the wall. It took an hour for him to bleed to death. East German troops did nothing to save him or render him aid. 
while several accounts say that West German police tried to throw him bandages, which he could not reach. Western authorities were prevented from further action by the threat of physical force. Both sides were fearful of the other, and as a result, no one helped a dying man. It is believed that Peter Fetcher would have died whether or not he received the help he begged for. He was just 18 years old. The History Goes Bump Podcast. The town of Salem, Massachusetts, carries a mystique that can be traced back to what has made this location infamous, and that are the witch trials that began in 1692. One of the prominent figures in those trials was a man named Jonathan Corwin. When another judge was reluctant to continue forward with the trials, Jonathan stepped in, signing arrest warrants and taking part in hearings. The results of these trials would be the deaths of 19 people. Corwin owned one of the few mansions in town, and it would come to be known as the Witch House. Legends have cropped up around the house that the souls of those convicted of witchcraft haunt the home, and other tales claim that women were tortured there to get their confessions. None of these are true. But something is haunting the former home of Jonathan Corwin. Join us and our special guest, Amanda Prouty, who's given tours in Salem as we explore the history and hauntings of the Witch House. Salem was originally settled by a Native American group who used the area as a trading center. Europeans first settled in 1626 after a group of fishermen led by Roger Conant arrived. Conant led the settlement for two years, and the Massachusetts Bay Company asked Conant to step aside and let John Endicott replace him. The transition was peaceful, and Endicott and Conant cooperated in such a way that all the settlers, who were considered old planters and new planters based on whose leadership they favored, got along and did not dispute the new government. Because of this, the town was called Salem, a Hellenized form of the Hebrew word for peace. George Corwin arrived in Salem in 1638 with his wife Elizabeth. George was a shipbuilder and a wealthy merchant. Their son Jonathan was born in 1640 in Salem. He followed in his father's footsteps as a merchant and eventually got involved with the government. He was elected to the colonial assembly and became a magistrate for the local courts. He married Elizabeth Gibbs, a widow, in 1675. That same year, he bought one of the larger homes in town that would come to be known as the Jonathan Corwin House and later the Witch House. This is the only structure still standing in Salem with direct ties to the Salem Witch Trials, which we featured in episode 61. There are many misconceptions about the house, and Amanda is going to share those with us. Well, tell us about this witch house. Denise and I have actually, we did one of the ghost tours there in Salem, and we got to see the outside Mm -hmm. of it, but we never got to go inside of it. And so when I looked it up and looked at the pictures, I went, oh, we know this place. We've we've been outside Mm -hmm. of it. So tell us about it. Well, I, I actually live so close to the witch house that if I raised the screen on my windows and leaned out, I would be able to see it. Oh, wow. That is close. One of the oldest houses in Salem. Uh, Salem suffered a great fire in 1914, and the witch house is one of the few original structures that survived that fire and expansion and everything else that has happened in Salem. So we believe it was built as early as 1642, but we 
don't really know for sure unless we do breathing testing or carbon testing on it. And the Corwins, so the witch hunt is actually a bit of a misnomer. No witches live there, no witch trials took place there, and I'll get to that. So no witch trials took place in this house. Interesting. But it's the home of a witch trials judge, Jonathan Corwin, and the Corwins moved in in 1675. And the last Corwin moved out in the 1860s. So the Corwins lived there continuously for a very long time. That's a long time to have it in the family. Very long time to be in the family. Mr. Corwin uh, died in the early 1700s, and then his wife died about 10 years after him. And then the house became an apothecary, and that's when it started to be open to tours. And they actually have photos of it as an apothecary, and it's really very interesting and lucky. And it's just kind of see the witch house underneath all the additions. Mm-hmm. And then the Historic Salem Foundation was built up um, and founded in 1940, and they bought the witch house because there was a threat of demolition with expanding the street. So the house got moved back from the, from the sea expansion out of the way and refurbished to what they believe to be more colonial, which is actually historically inaccurate, and it's been owned by the city of Salem ever since. So it's now opened for uh, self-guided house tours, and they're working on getting it open year-round, but unfortunately, there's no heat in it, so it gets very, very cold. Oh, I can imagine. When they moved it, did they pick up the whole house and move it back? Yes. Now, we don't have any images of that happening, but that was actually a really common practice in New England, is that they would literally raise the entire house and move it. In some towns, they actually moved houses across town to preserve them. Wow, that's a lot of work. Um, what we now call Historic Salem, they raised an incredible amount of money for 1940. They raised somewhere around $50,000, I want to say, to move the house and refurbish it. Wow. And then they signed a contract with the city of Salem saying, okay, now you're going to take care of it. Jonathan Corwin, you said, was one of the judges during the witch trials. Right. Is that correct? So that, that's yeah. basically the reason why they've called it the witch house is just because one of the judges had lived there. Right. And so when the apothecary opened the house, he would charge a nickel so you could see the old staircase and the old fireplace. And what's important about that is that the fireplace has had to be redone, but it is original to the house. It just had to be repieced together okay. with some new bricks. And the staircase is original. The apothecary would charge people a nickel to see this house. He said, come in to see the old witch house because he figured, well, a judge lived here. Therefore, the trial took place there. Wow. So just because one judge lived there, it had to be the scene of the trials. And there's no way the trials would ever have taken place in a, in a private home, let alone a home with a lot of children in it. The no. Corwins had 10 children. The apothecary kind of perpetuated these rumors, and they just started to kind of grow and mutate and change into, oh, witches were imprisoned here. Oh, witches were tortured here. And it's like, no, none of that happened. So Jonathan Corwin took uh, over on the witch child bench after the trial of Bridget Bishop, the first woman to be executed. Okay, so Corwin was a judge after Bridget Bishop. Because Judge Saltonshaw, who was on the original panel, said, I, I don't want to be a part of this. This is ridiculous. And he resigned. So Jonathan Corwin took his place. 
And most of those Wichita judges, they were merchants, they were militiamen, they were lawyers, they were businessmen, but they, they weren't really prepared for what they were about to do. Mm-hmm. They were very much overwhelmed by their land in Maine being annihilated during Indian Wars, and they were concerned about their assets, and they were... There's a lot of fear-mongering, really, is what it came down to. Sure. A lot of layers to the stories, at least. Well, and they were... Were they all Puritans? Yes, or what we might call Congregationalists now. Okay. So, yeah, so Massachusetts was found as a Puritan colony. Fun fact for you, on the Massachusetts state law book, Quakers and witches are still illegal in Massachusetts. Wow, including Quakers. That's interesting. Yeah, um, the Puritans were extremely anti-Quaker. In fact, in Salem down the street, a good bit down the street is the Quaker Cemetery. It's privately maintained. You know, if you blink, you miss it. <laughs> but Quakers, Quakers would be exiled to New Hampshire. And if they came back, they would be stripped down to their waist and whipped back over the border. Pretty pretty um, intense, to say the least. Yeah, a lot of animosity there. And part of their problem was just the fact that the Quakers didn't have a leader. They had equal rights for women, that anyone could speak in church. So it was basically the antithesis mm. of the Puritans. That's exactly faith. the word I was thinking. Yes. Mm-hmm. And now during Judge Corwin's time, Jonathan Corwin, it was his time on that that all the witches that were executed went to trial, correct? Right. So he actually oversaw the bulk of the trial. And his nephew was sheriff. His nephew was sheriff George Corwin. Jonathan Corwin was actually best friends with Judge John Hathorne. They were business partners and really good friends. And then um, Jonathan, we didn't know a ton about his attitude towards the witch hysteria. We don't know a bunch about uh, what he said or did during the trial because there's really very little documentation of his input. Um, His son was very briefly one of the afflicted. His son, uh, little George, was very briefly um, one of the afflicted. And that's in the trial transcript, but nothing ever came from that. It was almost more of a footnote than a big deal. But we believe that because of where Jonathan lived in town and the fact that he is from one of the most prominent families in Salem, that his house might be where the judges would convene and meet and talk about what they needed to discuss. So that's interesting that this home might have been a place for deliberation. They would all gather there kind of like a meeting house to decide what they were going to do. So we think it might have been a bit of a a nexus of activity. Inside the house, since they've set it up like it's more like the colonial period, is that the furniture is all colonial era, that kind of thing? Yeah, it's either either from the time period or it's reproduction. So it's a four-room mansion. At the time of the witch trials, most people lived in one-room houses. So a four-room mansion is pretty significant. And it has very high ceilings, okay. which is also significant because that shows that they had enough money that they could burn firewood to keep everything warm. <laughs> so the house is set up into a kitchen, a parlor, a children's room, and a master bedroom. There's also an attic, and then they added a lean-to that's now the gift shop. It would have had a lean-to and a summer kitchen of some kind, but over the years, with adding on and taking away, the lean-to went bye-bye. 
Was so is this house built? Ha- this is oh. built from wood. Is that correct? Yeah. So it's it's wood on the outside, but actually under the wood, um, and you can see it inside the house are bricks. Okay. So that was for insulation purposes. So the Hofstra Gables say we're the oldest wooden mansion in town, and that's true. They are the oldest wooden mansion in town, but they're not the oldest mansion in town. Gotcha. Well, I was thinking maybe the lean-to and the summer kitchen probably were just standalone kind of wood, so they wouldn't have survived as well anyway. No, no, absolutely not. But a lot of the brick is original, and a lot of the support beams are original. And actually, one of my tours many years ago, I had a man who was a descendant of slave carpenters. So his ancestors were, um, that was their specialty on the plantations, was carpentry. So he had been taught all about antique carpentry. And so he was looking at our support beams and he was explaining to me the carpenter's mark and why the nail holes looked the way that they did because the, um, the ceiling would have been lapped and plastered over to help reflect light. And he was just marveling at how well-preserved the wood was because of its age. Sure. So we're looking at a house that was built 1642. This was probably... 2010 when he was on my tour. Wow. And he was just, he, was, he actually pointed out some of these carpenter marks that I'd ever noticed. And he was talking about how they referenced placement in the house. And it was really interesting to hear his take on that. So when Historic Salem took it over, they put in um, this dark wood paneling and they took off the lath and plaster from the ceiling because they thought it looked more rustic and more colonial that way. It's actually the opposite of what colonial would have looked like uh-huh. but if you go to any house that's been reconstructed um, in the 1920s and 1940s into what they believe to be colonial you'll notice a lot of dark paneling and bare ceilings and you're like oh they were confused <laughs> oops because they had electricity and colonials didn't exactly so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but the house, the house is really interesting in the sense that I love seeing people's faces when I say it's a mansion because they look at me very blankly. And they're like, you're, you're kidding me, right? And the house is chimney is really beautiful. That's how you can always tell that it's a first period house or a 17th century house. It's just really bulky, ornate chimney. The artifacts you have in there, though they're not original to the house, but they give you a lot of insight into what the life would have looked like for someone like the Corwin's. They obviously have a lot more items because they were wealthy. And the current curator has put um, a lot of work into giving people an idea of what a wealthy Puritan woman would have worn. And so a lot of what we've been trying to do at the house is fight, not the myth, but just um, that Puritans were all black and that they were very dour and that they had no joy in their lives. None of that's true. They listened to music. They danced. They um, liked a good joke, and they actually wore a lot of color, hmm. and people don't tend to realize that. Black was reserved for judges and priests, people who could afford to keep dyeing their clothing black. Okay. But most people wore yellows, greens, blues, reds, natural dyes, because it was easy to replenish than the black was. Well, that's very interesting, because I, when you think Puritan, that's exactly, I think, either gray or black. Yeah. The Corwins, you said they had 10 kids? Yes. So Mr. Corwin married Elizabeth Gibbs right before they moved into the house. And Elizabeth Gibbs 
was born in Elizabeth Street. And she was very wealthy. And she brought three kids into the second marriage. Her first husband had passed away. Okay. Um, her mother was also very wealthy. So it was, we believe it was more of a political match and a business transaction than a love match. So the Corwins, according to stories, fought like cats and dogs. <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Corwin just epically fought all the time. But they still managed to have ten children, five boys and five girls. So they weren't always fighting. Um, <laughs> no, no, why make it up going on, I think? Why they make it up? No. <laughs> um, and only three of those children lived into adulthood, to give you an idea. At the time of the Corwins living in uh, Salem, we were right at the tail end of the little ice age. So winters were 10 degrees colder, summers were 10 degrees hotter on average. We have a higher infant mortality rate at that time period. And part of that was because of children were being born and the doctor was doing the delivering. Doctors didn't always wash their hands. Oh. Children would be baptized in the middle of winter. You always want to stay as warm as possible. Mm-hmm. So kids kept getting these diseases or getting sick, and no one knew why. So the Corwins lost 70% of their offspring, which is really high for the time period, but also not out of the realm of possibility. Well, I was going to ask you about the mortality rate, simply because you basically had said they had their master bedroom, and then they had a bedroom for the kids, and I was like, God, if they had 10 children, I wonder how many of them like lived into adulthood and stuff. Yeah. Their eldest son, the one who survived, little George, the one who um, was the footnote in the witchcraft trial actually be, went on to become a reverend. Okay. And he took over the what we now call the first church of Salem, so the Salem's first congregation. So whenever you're in Massachusetts and you see the phrase first church of, it just means that's the oldest congregation in town. That was the original congregation. Okay. So the buildings aren't the same as they were back then, obviously, but it's rooted in the founding congregation, which is kind of neat. So George actually got disowned by his father for drinking and gambling too much in college. <laughs> Typical and, Yeah, you know. And his son inherited the house at the whopping age of three. But Judge Jonathan had passed away, so the house was still maintained by his wife until the grandson could take over with his family. That just amazes me how long that house was in the family. It really is phenomenal, and you have a couple of pockets of houses like that in Massachusetts, and it's really neat. I'm currently volunteering at a museum, and the house that I um, give tours of, it was considered to be occupied from 1660 until 1922. Wow. Without electricity, without running water. Yeah, that would not be me. Uh, no, no. I, you know, I, don't, I, I like to say that I'm a hippie, but I like, I like my plumbing. I can do it with electricity, but I like my plumbing. You well, know? we like our Wi-Fi, too. <laughs> so the Corman House, it's, it's really a very interesting place. And the woman who's taken it over has a lot of love for it and a lot of love for the family. Um, and she very begrudgingly lets those adventures come in to do a stay over at the house. Mm-hmm. And I love the Ghost Adventures guys. I think they're adorable. I want to hang out with them. But when I saw the episode, I was audibly groaning. <laughs> they are in the kitchen, and their voice recorder says the name Bridget Bishop. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> there is no way that Bridget Bishop would be anywhere near that house. No. For so many reasons. 
Yeah, I mean, that doesn't even make logical sense. You probably stay far, far, far away from there. Exactly. So I'm almost like, oh, okay, that's probably a tulpa from just our, our visitors thinking that people were housed there. I, I, I mean, I've had, pres- I've had um, tourists come in and say, so, could we see the basement? I was like, why would you want to see our basement? Which I don't even go into. And they said, well, we hear that that's where the witches were in prison. <laughs> oh, my God, who told you that? <laughs> who, who told you that so you can correct the situation? I was just like, oh, my gosh, no. Yeah, it's these urban but, legends that get started. and The trip from the meeting house to get, or from the meeting house and the prison to Gallows Hill may have passed by the judge's house, but we're not fully sure. And also, just a few months ago, they discovered where Gallows Hill actually was located, which is a big deal, and it's all up behind a Walgreens um, here in town. And even just looking at old maps of town, it's like, mm, going by the judge's house, it just doesn't seem like it would be the route they would take mm-hmm. to go to that, to go to Proctor's Ledge, which is where the hangings took place. Yeah, so there really is no physical connection between the accused and the house itself. So we do have some hauntings that are reputed to be going on there. So who do they think is hanging out there still in the afterlife? Well, honestly, I believe it's one of the boy children who died at a very young age and Mrs. Corwin. I was sitting in the kitchen one day. It was a very, very quiet day at the house. And I'm just sitting there reading my book. And lo and behold, it's a kind of a spiral staircase. And around the corner of the spiral staircase, I see a little boy's face looking at me. There's no one upstairs. There's no one in the house at all, actually. So where did this child come from? Where did this child come from? And I just kind of turned my head and looked at him. And he looked at me. And then he ran off. I was like, okay. Okay. So that's that's something. Oh, wow. Um, Another day, I was going upstairs to shut down the house. And as I turned the corner, I saw a colorful skirt entering what we call the master bedroom. Silk, brocade, coral-colored skirt. Wow, just like it was kind of ruffling behind somebody. Exactly, exactly. Just because almost all of the activity is centered upstairs in the most private quarters, I really do think it's Mrs. Corwin and a couple of the children. I've never seen it myself, but local legend states that at certain times you can see children's faces in the bedroom window, in the attic window. Now, that, of course, makes sense because of how many children die in the house. Mm-hmm. I've never seen it, but I've, I've heard a lot of stories of people seeing the house at night and seeing children's faces looking out at them. Now, you said in the attic, did the children, do you know, did the children play in the attic or were some of their beds up well, in the attics for limited space since there were so many? Or Well, actually, in the summer months, Children would often sleep in the attic because there would be air circulation. Uh, Puritans didn't open their windows at night because they believed bad spirits would come in. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so they they always closed the windows at night because they were really afraid of bad spirits entering the house. You know, any time that a threshold is open or exposed, any time there's an opening exposed to the house, they would perform what we would call counter magic, what they would call, you know, protective Okay. And they actually uh, would close the windows. So the children would often sleep upstairs at the very top of the house 
under some of the maybe not as best held together shingles as the rest of the house. But we've we found certain items inside the house, literally inside the walls and inside the chimney, that show some evidence of this counter magic idea. Um, shoes are very common in door thresholds or in chimneys, showing that this is my place, you are not welcome here. And that's actually ancient Roman. So it's, it's, it's very interesting the way the colonials work, and you don't really get to know more about that in class. Was, um, now, was this something that was more just the colonial people? or I didn't realize the Puritans had these kinds of superstitions like that. Oh, it was actually, it was really big. So one of my professors in grad school, um, Tad Baker, did a whole um, session on counter magic. Wow. And it's enormous in England, even to this day. And it really carried over into New England and into Southern practices as well. But that actually blends with the African culture. Sure. But um, there are Sullivan jars in which you would keep iron nail- nails and urine and silver savings as a way to keep bad spirits away. Urine and nails to keep away bad spirits. Did East go get me a jar? Yeah, you would put bundles of herbs in your threshold to keep bad spirits away. That's kind of um, funny, given that a lot of the hysteria started by, like, homeopathic practices, you know, taking care of stuff, and they, they deemed it as, like, magic and stuff. So it's kind of funny that they already had a lot of that in their normal practices. Mm-hmm. I also think it's ironic uh, that that place became an apothecary. Like Denise <laughs> said, we, they went after a lot of these women who might have been just playing with herbs and things and saying, oh, that's some kind of witchcraft that you're doing there. This is what we've right. got going on in the house. It makes you wonder if that's why uh, Mrs. Corwin might be a little disturbed, maybe. Yeah, I mean, she she was a feisty lady. She also, um, her mother was actually accused of witchcraft during the hysteria. Oh, interesting. And John St. Corwin was like, yeah, yeah, I'm not going to arrest my mother-in-law. But nice guy. Oh, but another, another um, paranormal event that I forgot to tell you guys. Because I live so close to the house, I'm usually the first person there when I work there, particularly on the weekends. And one day I was opening the house, and again, everything seemed to center in the upstairs area. And I heard footsteps walking around upstairs above me. Okay, the alarm was on, so there's no way there's someone in the house because the alarm was on. No. You know, we heard, I think when they were telling us the stories about the house, we'd heard something similar to... I think the guide who was taking us through had been in the house as well. And that was their uh-huh. experience is that they were locking up for the night and they were like, oh, there's somebody still in the house. And of course, they walked all around yep. and went, nope, there's nobody here. It's just me. I'm getting out of here. Yeah. Well, we had, a, we had a couple of guys who said that they were upstairs shutting down and someone was trying to open the door. There's a hallway in between the master bedroom and the children's room. And that conceals the ladder up to the attic. Okay. And it's always locked. You have to have a key to get in there because you actually don't really want to go up to the attic because it's a little dangerous now with a lot of nails poking out. Oh, sure. So we never do. Um, so we just keep it locked because there's no reason to have it open. We had a young lady who was sitting down for the night and she swears up, down, and sideways that someone was trying to open the latch on that door. Hmm. <laughs> you could hear the clicking, you could hear the clacking, that someone was trying to open the latch from the inside. And again, there's no reason for that door to be meddled with. 
particularly from the inside. I was going to say, especially from that other side. <laughs> so exactly. Did, did she exactly. stay in the house or did she flee? Oh, she came upstairs and she was pretty shaken. She was pretty shaken. Um, I had another lady when I was there. I was the de facto manager on the weekend. And I had a young lady come down very upset because she had heard voices coming from the children's room and there was no one there. And <laughs> she pretty much refused to go into the house by herself after that. I don't think they're malevolent. I think they're more curious about people than anything else. Mm-hmm. I think Mrs. Carlin's a little annoyed with people being in her space, but um, the little boy was more curious about me than anything else. You know, I mean, he just was kind of staring at me for a while. And I'm, I looked back at him. You know, I, I watched you thought about saying hi. And he seems like he must have been intelligent because he was looking at you. Right. Just, almost like, um, you know, it's almost like, a, a, and I was a very shy child. So it, it's almost like that, that child hiding behind mm-hmm. the wall or their parent when they're in a room full of new people. So it, it was that kind of behavior. So it's something I really recognized. Now, with a lot of these paranormal experiences that people have had in there, are these more recent ones or have you heard of some that go way back? Because I'm interested in how moving the house might have affected it and made it so that it was more prone to being haunted because it was moved. Right. So I don't know. So I was actually trying to figure that out myself. I have not heard of anything predating the moving in the house. Okay. That doesn't mean that there wasn't something, but and people just didn't write it down or report it. Or especially um, talk about it, yeah. I, w- I wouldn't be surprised if there was some activity, but people just didn't register themselves. We're actually, so the witch house is located at a very interesting little nexus in town. So there's my house where I have George hanging out with me. And then there's the Salem Inn diagonally across the street from the witch house. The Salem Inn is also fairly haunted. And I, I used to work there too. And I think it was the Jeffrey Hotel episode I was listening to where the, they were getting phone calls from rooms that weren't occupied. That's I think it, you're, I can't remember, but I know exactly what you're talking about. That yeah. would, <laughs> calls coming down in the so room. Like, yeah, I was working the front desk at the Salem Inn, and I would get phone calls from rooms that were not occupied, and all the maids would be at lunch. There was a room there that was always freezing cold, no matter what time of year it was, and doors and drawers would open. One time, a person took a photograph in the courtyard, and she got a fake smiling at her, like someone hamming up for the camera. Mm. <laughs> I'm like, okay, awesome. So, yeah, so the witch house is in this, like, really interesting little nexus. And I think part of that is that it's actually on the edge of a power grid. I'm on the corner of what we call Summer Street or 114. So the witch house is on one side of the grid. I'm on the other. So a power line literally divides us. Very interesting. And that might have something to do with it, too. It always amazes me that, like, apparitions and ghosts and stuff have learned how to use our modern-day electronics, just like making phone calls or using that that Mm -hmm. modality to call down or using the energy to draw from, you know, because they didn't have those things, a lot of them, back during their life. If if we are correct in which, and, like, that these are the ghosts of those people. But, yeah, no, that is, that is something I've always been really curious about is, you know, how would a ghost from the 1800s, early 1800s, be familiar with power? I mean, the concept of electricity existed, mm-hmm. but not the harnessing of it. Sure. I had not actually gotten 
confirmation of this, but it's my understanding that Salem actually exists on a naturally occurring electrical fault line. And that means that, you know, we have natural electricity already running through our ground. Yeah, especially if we have those plates moving together. Right. And I don't know if that's exactly true, but I wouldn't be surprised. And so you put a a naturally occurring electrical fault line next to a major water system, you're going to get double whammy. So when do they run tours there? You said they usually don't do them in the winter? They don't do them in the winter. So now we do self-guided. So the house is open continuously from early May until the second week in November. Um, There are always people inside the house to answer questions. It is amazing how popular the whole quote-unquote witch thing is now there in Salem. What was once the thing that caused several women and what was it, one man to lose their life, it's like now that's like the attraction, like everybody has to put witch in their name somewhere, like on every storefront, every house, every restaurant. And so it's like now that's the magnet to attract people there where it was something you didn't even want to associate with back in the day. Right. When you do tours inside the house, those are just historical, right? They're not ghost tours. Yeah, they're just historical. Um, and we, we focus on the daily life of the Corwin. We talked a little bit about the witchcraft trials. One thing that I really focused on was trying to debunk what people think they know about the trial. And, you know, we get a lot of questions. You know, we got questions like, do you have to be a witch to work here? Okay. Um, <laughs> or they see me and they're like, oh, you have red hair. You must be a witch. I was like, really? Well, that's what I was thinking. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> obviously, <laughs> obviously. I've had a couple of people faint on my tours in the parlor, which I thought was really interesting. They never faint anywhere else in the house, only in the parlor. And I'm like, what did I do wrong? But I almost think that maybe that's just some of the built-up energy or something. But it was people who were fine, just completely fine throughout the tour. And then all of a sudden, they turned white as a sheet and fall over. And I've had three people pass out on a tour. Wow. Have you ever felt like an oppressive energy when you're in there? No, never. I mean, I usually would feel like someone's looking looking over my shoulder or watching me. It's more of someone or something is really curious about what's going on. Well, it's, would... it's more of that, that curiosity or you're in my space and you leave now. Right. It'd be weird like kind having all these, all these people in your home all the time. Yeah. Well, thank you for suggesting this location to us and sharing it with us. Well, yeah, it's, a really, it's a really neat place. It has a really interesting history. There's just so much to it. I mean, Salem obviously does a lot to Salem too. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Amanda, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. So good talking to you, ladies. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. The Salem Witch Trials left much negative energy behind. Does some of this energy still carry over to our present day? Do some of the members of the Corbin family still reside in the house after death? Is the witch house haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, this is a location that we visited the outside of it. I'm kind of bummed that we didn't see the inside, even though it's more colonialized, so it's not going to look like it did back when Jonathan Corwin lived there, but it still would have been neat to see it. It's always, yeah, I was like going in and seeing where, you know, people actually lived at one time. 
the witch house is not very willing to have people come in and do ghost investigations. And anytime that they have been asked, they usually say no, but they alleviated. And I don't know why, but they did it for ghost adventures, which to me, if if you're reluctant to have people come in, they're probably the last group you want to have come in because apparently all hell broke loose. And supposedly all these Bridget Bishop's name was coming up and they were conjuring things and who knows, but it sounded like a bunch of BS and it gave the woman who was the director there a very sour taste in her mouth. So I'm sure it will never happen again. It's not something they like to talk about. So it was really nice that we were able to have Amanda bring us her personal experiences because you're not going to find much out there on the internet when it comes to the hauntings because they really don't like to talk about it much. Exactly. So we really appreciate and, and love it when our listeners bring forth their own personal experiences and their own knowledge. So thank you again, Amanda, for joining us. We have another listener joining us for our next episode. This one was suggested to us originally by Bob Sherfield, and then Alana Ashby came to us and suggested it also and said that she would love to do some research for us and come on the show with us. So we're going to be joined on the next episode, which will feature Haunted Pluckley Village over in the United Kingdom. I know. So it's going to be a very special, another special episode. So we look forward to bringing that to you. We also have something special to introduce to all of you on this episode. It's called Spectral Edition. Now, we know we share some listeners with the Big Seance podcast, so you've probably heard Tim Prassel's Spectral Edition over there. Tim wanted to join us here as well, and he is going to be bringing Series 3 of Spectral Edition exclusively to the History Ghost Bump podcast, and we're going to be running the very first of those on this episode. Basically, Tim scours historical newspapers to find reports of ghostly activity, and he presents these stories on his blog and then in this audio version, which you guys are about to hear, and he is working on a book, so we look forward to him getting that done. If you want to check out Tim's blog, you can do that at the MaryGhostHunter.wordpress.com, and that's Mary as in M-E-R-R-Y. So here we go. Welcome to Spectral Edition. I'm Tim Prossel. You know, just about any theater that puts on plays and is probably around 50 years older or more, it probably has a ghost. And if it doesn't, they're doing something terribly wrong. I've got a ghost report here that isn't about a haunted theater, but it's about haunted actors. It was published in the St. Paul Globe on May 16th of 1900, and the headline is Coglin House Full of Ghosts, Actresses' Family Driven from Home by Spooks and the Servants Wouldn't Stay. New York Telegraph. Rose Coglin and her husband, John T. Sullivan, are in despair. Their home at New Rochelle is haunted. Two weeks ago, the spooks came, and if the ghostly guests do not cease their nightly visitation, Mr. and Mrs. Sullivan will be compelled to vacate. Just a fortnight ago, the spiritualistic manifestations began. The two servants, who occupied rooms upstairs, were awakened in the middle of the night by repeated rappings. For the space of a minute, the rappings would continue. For perhaps two minutes, they would cease. Then they would begin again. Suddenly a door, which was locked and bolted, would slam. A cool breeze would be wafted through the rooms. Steps could be heard on the stairs. And then, most distinctly, so the frightened servant said, the unmistakable rustling of a woman's dress sounded across the floor. 
The first night the spooks came, the servants were so paralyzed with fear that they dared not get up or make any outcry. The next morning, they declared they would not sleep upstairs again. However, after much coaxing, they were induced to reconsider their determination on condition that the lamps should be allowed to burn until daylight. Servants were scared. The next night, there were the same weird rappings, the same uncanny footfalls on the stairs, doors were slammed as before, though they neither opened nor shut, and the rustle of a dress was heard, though the wearer was invisible. The servants left the next day, vowing that nothing could induce them to remain in the house. Mrs. Coglin, mother of the actress who lives with her daughter and son-in-law, sent word to them at once. Mr. and Mrs. Sullivan, it should be explained, have been temporarily living in the city. Mr. Sullivan dispatched another domestic to New Rochelle. The woman was told nothing about the spooks, but the night of her arrival she made their acquaintance. About one o'clock in the morning, she gave vent to unearthly screams, rushed down the stairs, and escaped from the house, clad in a brief nightdress and numerous curl papers. In her hurry, she didn't even pause to take her false teeth. At daylight, the scared domestic ventured back to the haunted house for her trunk and wardrobe. She took the first train for the city. Performance was continuous. A day or two later, Mr. Sullivan sent a fourth servant to his spook-infested home. She came back to the city the next morning, demanded a month's wages from the actor, and threatened to sue him for damages for the shock sustained by her nervous system. Mr. Sullivan and Miss Coglin then gave up trying to retain servants, and, night before last, decided to go down to New Rochelle to investigate for themselves. Sullivan determined to sleep upstairs. About midnight, he heard the rappings, as described, and getting out of bed, proceeded to investigate. With a lamp in his hand, he searched all through the house, but the only spirits he could find were on the sideboard. In the morning, Mr. Sullivan and Miss Coglin returned to town and related their experiences. A friend suggested to Mr. Sullivan that perhaps it was only the landlord rapping for his rent, but his suggestion was received with indignation. Not a joking matter. Let me tell you, this is no jesting matter, said Mr. Sullivan. I can't keep a servant, and I'll have to give up the place, that's all. Miss Coglin, when seen, said, Usually in our profession, we are glad to see the ghost walk but these particular ghosts are most unwelcome. The fact may have nothing to do with the ghostly apparitions, but it may be mentioned that, though since 1946 there had not been a death in the family, during the past three months four members have died. Mr. Sullivan's father, his sister's husband, Charles Coglin, and Miss Ida Coglin. I especially like the ghost reports that invite additional research. And if you do a little bit of web searching, you'll find a fair amount of information on Rose Coglin, including pictures of her. She's got a Wikipedia entry. She's on IMDb. 
John T. Sullivan, not quite as famous, but you can find out a few things about him, too. I'm Tim Prossel, and you've been listening to Spectral Edition. I have close to 300 of these ghost articles, and I post one each Wednesday on my website. It's called The Merry Ghost Hunter. I hope you stop by for a visit. That was great. Thanks so much, Tim, for that. We have some reviews to share with all of you from iTunes. The first one is from Avery Lewis. Five stars, adorations. Being a new fan and member of the Spectacular Crew, one word describes my sentiment, love. The hosts are a quirky couple, cerebral, engaging, and funny. I love those. I love their treatment of the paranormal and Disney obsessions. Plus, they have a keen willingness to explore the unpopular haunts and forgotten spirits. Being a British culture fanboy, I loved hearing about a seldom chatted about Grace Dew Priory. Thank you for talking about this and researching it properly. Well, thank you, Avery. And that is one of our less downloaded shows. There's not a whole lot of love for that one, but it was a great show. I just love doing those ancient buildings and it had some really good haunting stuff to go with it. Yes, it was really, really interesting. So anybody who's listening to the reviews, go check it out if you haven't already. And of course, I can't off the top of my head remember what episode that was, but it was one of our earlier ones. Oh, well, they can listen to all of them until they get there. That's right. <laughs> and we heard from Kay Ellen, a wonderful find, five stars. I'm new to this podcast community, having just stumbled across your HGB episodes a few days ago, but I have been hooked ever since. The entertaining hosts and guests have managed to breathe new life into the sometimes stagnant area of history and seamlessly blend the facts and information history buffs love to hear and the stories and theories that keep us all entertained. Their episodes are widely diversified on locations, so there is an episode covering a location for everyone and their chatty style makes you feel like it's a group of well-educated friends sharing wonderful stories. I haven't gotten to listen to you all at work like some of your audience, but you filled the hours I spend painting wonderfully. If you ever find yourselves in Kentucky, please feel free to cover some of the local haunts like Cave Hill Cemetery or Waverly Hill Sanatorium or any of the many smaller and lesser known locations. Thanks, Kaylin. We appreciate that. And we definitely will be back in Kentucky. I have no doubt about that. No, because we have some national parks we want to see, like Mammoth Caves National Park. And we want to explore some more of the haunts because after we left there, we found out how amazing Kentucky was. So we definitely put it back on our list of places we want to go back to. And since we were talking about our picture featuring us inside the Disney Mansion, Denise, it's only fitting that we have a review from Disney Mansion fan oh, very who actually cool. updated her review. Oh, fantastic. So we appreciate you updating that review and giving us a, another star in there. We appreciate that. Yes, we do. We want to thank you guys for listening to this one. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producers, Joseph Tamilonis and Matthew Herons. Thank you. Check out the website at historygoesbump.com.